0: the day when we first met you looked at me and i knew how simple life was then
1: what's happened to our country to the land we love if our leaders what I believe is wrong.
2: Sanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila D.
3: Good afternoon, this is Sheila. It's a little bit of an overcast Memorial Day weekend here is Saturday in Austin, Texas. We'll be joined hopefully shortly with our co-host, Mr. Gregor Very angry. I see you're dying. I am
4: here. And am look- is- do you not but it's sunny and gorgeous in the beautiful Hillsborough Oregon
3: Oh, yeah. So I mean, is it sunny out there?
4: Sunny in 73. I can't, can't beat it with a stick.
3: Yeah, it's great. Okay, so we, we really do have a, a, a information packed show for you today. I want to start out by saying that that racket publication on Substack who we routinely will show uh, information for or from on this program. He's really knocked out of the park this week, Matt Taibbi and Mr. Walter Kern. Um, Matt Taibbi made the news again uh, because of his IRS um, altercation. Apparently, they filed some kind of an an intrusive um, agent queue on Christmas Eve And that was that was news this week. So we decided to go to the horse's mouth about what that was and and how it was going to turn out. And um, so once we get past Walter Kern's suntan, we can we can talk about Matt Taibbi. Last year, let's see here. So uh, I bring this is uh, episode forty America this week with Matt Taibbi and Walter Kern. Uh, they're going to discuss DIA, D-I-A-A, which is Ukraine's all-new consuming everything app and talk about the machine stops uh, and the 1909 story that predicted it. The entire interview is in the link section here um, on Colin. So if you see that box above or somewhere, it should be located somewhere or in the information section. You can find the links there. I'm going to go ahead and run this. It's about eighteen minutes.
2: What, that's every week. That's every week. Money. What What's little for you? That's great uh, on a curve. Uh, you weren't You weren't thrown in the pen, or you didn't have more IRS agents at your door, did you? Or what
5: we had, I had a little little IRS complication this week because the stuff little. came out about yeah. why they came um, to to my house and when they opened the case on me and all that stuff. So that was a little weird. The big thing was that I found out that they opened the case on Christmas Eve last year, which was the the day that I I was dropping the big Twitter file story about the links to the FBI and the CIA and the other government agencies. Is was Christmas Eve in a hotel
2: is Christmas, and... is Christmas Eve usually a federal work day?
5: Yeah, not really as, as far as I understand. In fact I my understanding is that there's not a whole lot of IRSing that gets done in the last couple of weeks of December. Generally mm-hmm. that's sort of a period where you take all of your untaken vacation days. So the optics of it were weird on many levels. Um, I, you know, I'm joking about it, but clearly it's a little it's a little upsetting. I've heard from, from some other people in the interim uh, who've had experiences with the IRS that suggest, you know, that it's not terribly uncommon, you know, for weird dossiers to be opened up about people who have said things that, you know, in the media that have upset. You know folks in government so you know that's part of my thinking about going to the committee is that this is a sort of a rare opportunity to find out how these things happen maybe they Mm -hmm. will be able to to subpoena some records and um so we'll see but um lots of stuff happened in the world this week that was that's interesting and we can get to some of that you texted me something uh pretty early in the week and i watched it and a chill went up my spine. Did, did that happen with you when you watched this for the first time?
2: My spine is pretty frozen these days. But, uh, <laughs> and, but and yet a chill did go up, an extra chill. A, an icicle of a spine froze even further. I think it was the voices involved, um, which you can introduce, uh, and the production quality of this little video. Oh, nice. Yeah, so...
5: This is a video that comes to us by way of Grayzone and our friends, Max Blumenthal, uh, Aaron Mate, and uh, in particular, I guess, Anya Parampil, who was there. There was an event in, uh, in Washington and Anya describes it as this way, it was Kiev officials and Samantha Power from USAID were in, were in Washington Celebrating how the Ukraine war kicked off the, quote, new age of, quote, e-governance, alongside the executive chairman of Visa, they are openly describing the sacrifice of U- Ukrainian civilians on the altar of Western finance and tech. The event is dedicated to promoting DIA, Ukraine's the smartphone that digitizes med records, banking, biometric data, and all aspects of life into a singular app. And DIA, by the way, is, is sort of the Ukrainian word for, I guess, To be or being, it's kind of conceived as like an everything
2: app, right? So they Uh, aim high with this this title. Uh, It's the existence. Right, yeah. It's the human existence app. The Gray Zone folks kind of
5: describe being at this conference, and they keep talking about how the American officials are so excited by kind of the proof of concept of DIA. Uh, and remember, DIA is, is, is sort of a hybrid creation of USAID, Visa, and Google, uh, among other things. There's a joke in there that somebody, one of the speakers uses as a, as a joke to warm up the crowd, the idea that AI is gonna destroy humanity. <laughs> and then there's a revelation that similar eGov apps are being launched in other countries like Estonia, Zanzibar, and Colombia. Uh, Samantha Power, you know, excitedly says, something remarkable is happening in Ukraine as we speak. And then they play a video about uh, the DIA app and what it sounds like and what it looks like. And obviously this is in English. There's a Ukrainian uh, analog. I've obviously, I went and looked at it later, but this Mm -hmm. English language video, the piece of it, Just by itself, there's so much to get into here. First, firstly, what's the audience for this presentation? It looks like a bunch of, let's see who else was there. Uh, Visa executives, vice prime minister for innovation, uh, Mikhaila Fyodorov uh, from Ukraine, Kara Swisher was there and Samantha Power.
2: So so these are, these are a combination of aspiring uh, developers and Ukrainian officials um, and American diplomats.
5: USAID, I mean, we. you always have to give an asterisk. It's, you know, it's like Barry Bonds home runs. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they, they they roll this video and man, if this doesn't remind you of um, a certain sci-fi movie, I, I don't know what to do, but uh, let, let's see, let's take a listen
6: or bonds aimed at rebuilding the liberated and soon-to-be-deoccupied Ukrainian cities, state mortgage.
3: Military, medics,
6: teachers, and scientists can apply for the state mortgage right in the app. eEnemy, a chatbot that helps any citizen safely transfer info about the location of Russian troops, names of collaborators, and enemy movements to the armed forces. Numerous attacks of Russian army destroyed a number of TV towers. To provide Ukrainians with uninterrupted access to information, We launched DIA radio and DIA TV, so that even under blackouts, millions could feel present. And added the in-app army of drones game to help Ukrainians both distract and donate to the common purpose. Has the enemy launched cyber attacks on Ukraine? Of course they have, and they failed. Even when the world is falling apart, our main task is to protect the people. Together, we can build a stronger one.
5: (laughs) So... So DIA is a snitching app, right? I mean, they they have e enemy in there, and I, I went and I, I did a whole bunch of research on this uh, state and smartphone concept. There's sort of a this happened in stages. The you know the, the prior president Petro Poroshenko, he introduced something called ProZoro in you know between 2014 2016. This was designed to be kind of a .gov app that centralized contracting and some other things, improving transparency. Uh, And then uh, it was uh, Zelensky who came along and created this concept of the Ministry of Digital Transformation in in 2019. Uh, And that's when they coined the phrase a digital state in a smartphone where you could fight corruption and manage complex administrative hurdles with one click. Uh, This became possible thanks to the DIA app, meaning action in Ukrainian. It it goes into how, in addition to all the civilian uses of this, they uh, began to develop, um, after the war started, some other features for this app. Therefore, in the first days of the war, the Ukrainian government launched the chatbot eEnemy, a called ENEMY designed for Ukrainian citizens to report the Russian military and its equipment's movements and inform the Ukrainian government about the collaborators' activities. The chatbot activity gained over 370,000 visits, most revealing hostile groups. Moreover, the DIA application offered the option to donate to the Ukrainian army, a financial assistance program for businesses affected by the war and recompensation for damaged properties, uh, a migrant card assistance consultations for displaced people and an e-document for those crossing the border without documents quickly became available in the application in this way a mobile phone confirmed people's identity even when the physical copy of the document was lost so it's your whole life in the phone and it's a way to report on those who are enemies to the cause and you know, in, in Russian, I saw it referred to as Yevrog, so that's E-enemy, e but you know, it, it sounds a lot more sinister uh, in their language. I don't know, Walter, this reminded me of Starship Troopers and the whole like, and, and a little bit like the, the DHS thing that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago where it, uh, obviously they have more cause to do it in Ukraine, but creating an app and they talked about the intersection with cybersecurity agencies and developing this stuff. You just start to wonder about the possibilities of this kind of
2: technology. Luckily, we're never going to have anything like this in America. And that, that makes me feel good. Um, just because we developed it, and just because it has the convenience of putting an entire state in a smartphone doesn't mean we will ever be subjected to it. And I feel great for the Ukrainians that, that they're in this fashion ahead of us. E enemy, first of all, I think of that as the opposite of Tinder. You know, <laughs> it, 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 If Tinder, the thing that we have in America, uh, allows us to identify potential mates or friends, uh, intimate friends, this allows us to find adversaries everywhere and report them. Maybe have them, you know, disappear from, from view. I don't know what happens to your e-enemy after you've registered them. I don't know if it's like a. Yeah, I think know, some, some reporting needs to be done on that. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a three strikes thing? You know, do, do, do three people have to identify as an enemy before the drone comes or do, do only one, there's only one person? Ah, uh, so let's look at the other things. The, uh, attempt to get people into looking for, you know, uh, troops and enemy aircraft and so on, I guess is just a, a modern version of the, of the, of the spotting that we were asked to do as in America and World War II. Right. Um, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, in a lot of ways, this, this app though sinister only concentrates things that populations at war are, uh, seek to do all the time, which is you know, spot threats, uh, identify traders, loose lips, sink ships, maybe uh, call out people who are talking too much about state secrets. But it also, what was what, what was interesting, has all of these sort of uh, domestic, everyday capabilities. So you apply for a mortgage on the same platform that you turn in uh, traders and spies. You you. Uh, and, and that is the, the, I think the innovation here in this banality of, in this banality of evil fashion, make a kind of a financial app, PayPal or Venmo or, uh, you know, uh, E trade absolutely adjacent to your militarized side of the persona. Yeah. Persona. Mm. So, so it really integrates, it really integrates the civilian soldier and the you know aspiring middle class homeowner into one you know into one piece of software. I imagine that if you lose your phone, you death only death could be more uh, disturbing because they talk in this about how this thing replaces other documents and, and allows you to go on as an identified individual should you lose papers and so on yeah. and. It seems that what you've got is a kind of uh, surrogate soul, really. Um, a surrogate body, a surrogate um, identi- identifier, besides your own face. Yeah, I mean, it,
5: it's like uh, an idiocracy when they find Luke Wilson doesn't have a code on his arm, a barcode on his arm, right. and they're all freaked out because, you know, how how come for you don't have a a number, you know, they, they, they're all terrified because they've never seen that before. But this is, it speaks to the same fear that drove the kind of communion trucker movement, this idea that you know, vaccine passports, that the state needs to know our movements somehow and that that is connected somehow to what our record of political donations, and I think people were deeply worried about this idea of something that smells like a social credit system. Now, it makes more sense in a combat environment where you know, all of these, a lot of these functions seem to have a lot of utility to them. Like if you get lost, where, where's the nearest place you can find medical help and first aid right. and all that stuff? Right. And, And yes, if you see tanks rolling over the horizon, it's great to be able to tell Central Command where they're, you know, what you saw. Uh, But you can also imagine all sorts of applications for this that are a little bit less, you know, black and white. Especially in, you know, given the background of what we've trained people in the internet age to do, we've already created systems where, you know, reporting people online for their behavior. Is a thing that we've we become accustomed to doing, uh, and that it, it's effective. It puts them on denialists. It knock it, it sort of knocks them down as social media citizens. Um, you can end up being kicked off a platform, and then your record of being kicked off the platform follows you around for a while, like a virus. And and so we, we've already sort of trained a, a population to have like one click reporting of people next door and i don't know that I, it, because of that this makes me nervous
2: um well, well so so matt it, you know, know. It, 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 so years ago do you remember the no fly list the the no fly list was an early form of uh, physical and practical cancellation and uh, we were told that it was somehow filtering out possible terrorists but I had a friend who was a short order cook here in Livingston who managed to get on the no fly list because he had an altercation in a plane with a guy who turned out to be an air marshal. And, um, once he was on the new no fly list, his life changed. For example, he, a, a relative died, uh, suddenly, um, and unexpectedly in a town, uh, across the country and getting there became very difficult um, to the funeral. Getting there to the funeral uh, became very difficult. All of a sudden he had a very arduous life on his hands and uh, you know whether he earned his no-fly list membership, I, I can't speak to, but once he was on it, life got very tough indeed.
3: Anyway. Okay. So we're going to end it there. Um, so it just seems like, you know, once you're on this government list, if there's no end to the agency, uh, they, they want to keep it to where you're always indebted, you're always in some sort of snarl. It, it's kind of like a low grade prison sentence with no uh, due process. And that's why it is patently un-American. Even though it's happened in America, it's really a bad deal for civil liberties. You can't, it's a violation of the Sixth Amendment that you can't, can't contest it somehow. Or the process for contesting it is really, you know, very Eastern Bloc socialist circa 1977. You know, you can't get to it. And uh, they, they blame you for not, not being more proficient with their bureaucracy, that you're not supposed to be able to protest it. Uh, and this is similar with other things with DHS. Like if you wanted to opt out of a, D, uh, of a Real ID license and just get a normal operator license for your ID, you know, you go to the window and they tell you, well, we don't do that here. Like, well, where else am I supposed to do this? This is the DMV this is where you get the driver's license. If I'm going to opt out, you know, how do I opt out of it? Well, they they don't tell you because it's a DHS led architecture and it's meant to be a, an identity trap. So there's a lie involved with it. And it's a, it's presented to the, to the customer, as they call them as in a dishonest way. Um, So I'm becoming, you know, more and more acquainted with some of these anti-constituent, anti-customer outlooks, and they can criminalize or sub subhumanize anyone for any reason within a rules meeting that they have behind closed doors where you're not there. And uh, one of the, the it's, it's proven, okay, this is totally proven, Uh, For a long time, or even as soon as last week, there was a DHS hearing. uh, There was confrontation about left-wing terrorism. Uh, It seemed like the Democratic half of the minority of the subcommittee on oversight and accountability would not admit that there was any left-wing violence. And that's a real problem because people died And when we ignore when people die due to political politicized violence, this is a problem. That's what they call willful blindness. Because homicide is homicide, and terrorism is a a, a crime. In fact, it's one of the most egregious crimes, you know, and one of the the reasons why DHS is on the planet. But when they choose to ignore it, when they choose to not see the crime that is done that maybe benefits their political allies, um, well, then that is that is a special form of corruption called willful blindness. Okay, and I wrote about that in my substack uh, with a title called Homeland Security Kabuki Theater Presents White Supremacy and Oversight Scarecrow. So uh, that was three hours of my life I can't get back, but I, I want to move on to um, this piece from real, not real clear politics, it is um, with Sebastian Gorka, believe it or not. And it's not like I'm a rabid Sebastian Gorka fan, but it just so happens that I am a really big uh, Mike Benz fan. So he was on Sebastian Gorka's show. And, you know, we've been hearing for years that 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 the establishment is targeting Trump voters and. You know, it's beginning to sound like an old saw, like, eh, it's just what they say these days. You know, just kind of like, you know, all liberals are crazy and and, and that sort of thing. But there is merit to this claim because Do you see the graphic that illustrates this program? That's a DHS graphic from a PowerPoint that went out. Okay, now now your tax dollars paid for this. So I want to... I want to pull this up. This is about seven and some minutes. So if you'll just in, you? uh, uh, just indulge me, it's going to be some Sebastian Gorka. I know you're all Sebastian Gorka fans.
1: News of the day was, of course, what we found out about the Department of Homeland Security targeting you if you voted for President Salem Trump, News. calling you a domestic extremist, a far right radical. Who better to discuss it than a man who's educated me so much on all of these issues? Mike Benz, welcome back to America First, the founder of the Foundation for Freedom Online. Let's put this graphic up uh, on the screen, Mike. Uh, This um, research document funded by DHS to the tune of millions of dollars. The fact that this pyramid of far-right radicalization has... (laughs) has the Republican Party symbol oh my God, and has a maga hat in it what what should we conclude
7: as a result, Mike? So there are several things here. One is the DHS has become a Department of political policing. DHS is trying to fill in the squishy gray area that the FBI is not allowed to target because there's no law-breaking. And so DHS, the only other inward-facing, domestic-facing intelligence agency in the U.S. government, is trying to take the long-arm jurisdiction that the FBI is restricted from having and recruiting a private sector mercenary army to do it. So the magic of this graph here isn't just that it's so dastardly in its appearance that literally the GOP symbol is on it itself, but that they're pumping a a cash into into a kind of censorship and counter extremism mercenary army in the private sector and in the universities in the form of these 40 million dollars worth
3: okay i'm gonna stop right there do you remember the dia app that was just discussed that was an export control of our censorship apparature okay they're like okay here's a snitch app here's a snitch app we we developed it we're exporting it to ukraine This is where they're developing it for use on you. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt it. I just wanted to make that point really quick. The
7: grants through this CP3 program at DHS. So they are raising an army of private sector people to go after Republicans, to go after conservatives, to go after anybody who dons a MAGA hat. Uh, And there's a lot more to say on that, but I think that's the opening salvo.
1: And and tell us about the history, because you were Mr. Cyber at the Department of State. What is the CB3 program? What what are these monies, these millions of dollars, originally meant to be protecting us
7: from? Right. So this program, uh, it happened sort of in tandem with the creation of this this department called CISA. CISA was the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, whose, whose name is so repetitive and redundant, you know, it has the word security in there twice. Uh, the founder of that DHS agency said we just, you know, uh, basically bragged about how boring the agency was, uh, which misled the entire public into thinking its sole purpose was cybersecurity. Of course, they then expanded that to mean, uh, anything that is critical infrastructure, uh, is, is cybersecurity if it's connected to the internet which means social media platforms, your speech, uh, basically anything you tweet is a sort of cyber attack against critical infrastructure. Now, that was for coordinating with the social media companies for taking out Trump supporters, essentially. This program, CP3, grew out of this uh, countering, uh, like proactively countering uh, domestic extremism um, and it really got a huge influx of cash after the January 6th events, which used this predicate that even if something didn't rise to the level of domestic terrorism, you could still call it extremism and basically give it the same treatment you would as if somebody was a terrorist. Now, as mushy as the definition of terrorist was uh, extremist gets you all the way into, you know, simply someone belonging to a political party that you, that you disagree with. So, what they've done here is a strategy that I call inflation, inflation elimination. Which is, if you want to eliminate something, you don't just say, "Oh, uh, we're going to get rid of it because we don't like it." You have to lay a predicate in place, which means you need to conflate it with something that has been inflated in the public conception as being totally evil or extremist. So here, in this case, they use concepts like hate speech, and they and they so they put at the top of this pyramid these totally extreme Nazi groups. And so they say, well, we know that should be targeted, or at least that's what they believe. So all we need to do is conflate the people we really wanna censor, our political threats with this extreme thing. And then we've got an elimination predicate. So they inflate this idea of Nazis, they inflate this idea of right-wing extremism, of of, uh, things that are tangential to violence, they then conflate who they really want to go after with that thing, and then boom, just like that, you can sweep the whole thing out uh, as part of this, uh, you know, conflation strategy. And that's right. And the, fact,
1: really what and the fact that they openly put it on a, on a training or research document—they put a red, red maga hat. That they're, they're
7: talking about seventy-four million people, Mike. Yes, they are, and in fact, DHS has adopted this policy, which is the exact opposite of the free speech standard we've had in this country for at least sixty years dating back to the Supreme Court Brandenburg decision, which said that that the U.S. government cannot interfere with any speech unless there is a law, and thus there's an imminent call to lawless action. DHS has taken this philosophy that they call the long fuse of misinformation, where they say it doesn't need to be lawless, it can just be misinformation. It doesn't need to be imminent, it can be a long fuse. Uh, But as long as they sort of say that the misinformation issue starts Starts at the at the at the reading of news itself, at the exposure to online information, and so this pyramid well, it, is an it, extension it, of that. It's a little bit like Philip
1: K. Dick. It's like the, the Bureau of Future Crimes, isn't it?
7: It's exactly that, except it's not even crimes here. You know, misinformation is a lower standard than crime, and even here, what they're talking about is not actually about stopping errors. It's about stopping extremism, which
1: which includes extreme thoughts that is My extreme gosh. political movements like MAGA. All right, we, we we need to talk about this long fuse at more depth. Uh, I know you're on the road. Let's talk next week. In the meantime, Foundation for Freedom Online. You've got to bookmark it right now. Mike is the founder and follow him at Mike Ben's Cyber. That's at Mike Ben's Cyber. God bless you, Mike. We're gonna get you back. You can follow us on all the social media platforms.
3: Okay. Well, I, I like Sebastian Gorka, uh, but but we're, we're just here to, to get that information. And we're happy to, to, to sample a show for the benefit of our listeners. But that was the information. There's an active way of con- kind of conflating things in this kind of legally soft area, um, where You know, there is no criminality, but they're manufacturing an aura of criminality around non-criminal things. There is no criminal action that is occurring, okay? Yet, it is being interposed as terrorism because it is political. Political. And terrorism is inherently political in nature. So, we knew at some point they were going to turn this homeland security gun pa pa onto the public because politics there is political action going on people who are being political and what is what is really flaggy about this is that there has been actual terrorism that has occurred but when it applies to the to the political allies of the prevailing party in this case, it would be the Democrats. They do not see it. They won't recognize it. And the fact that it was so bald-faced uh, to, to the point of, of Ron Goldman. Ron Goldman got a, a thrashing by Glenn Greenwald. I'm going to read this quote here from Mr. Greenwald. Just pull it up here. Wah wah, 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 wah. Thank you for listening, by the way. Thank you for coming out. Okay, so he had an entire program that I think it was Friday about the Dan, Thursday or Friday about the Dan Goldman rebuttal. But this is the nut. The reason why he was so popular among the wealthy white liberals who vote for the member of Congress in Manhattan is because he spent the last three years as a lead lawyer in the Mueller investigation. That's the FBI investigation on Trump. And that ended up concluded that there were no evidence for the central Democratic Party claim that the Trump campaign had criminally concluded with the Kremlin to hack the DNC and the Clinton campaign. So that's Dan Goldman. And here he is defending the censorship regime. Quote unquote, that's Glenn Greenwald. So, I think we're kind of coming to kind of this consensus is that there's a manufactured criminality that's being blanketed over a large swath of political dissenters to the democratic uh, lane of government. Okay? And it becomes the, the democratic-flavored government when they become uh, officials or when they come into office, but they're not there to serve the public. They're there to, I don't know, they have some other agenda, apparently. You know, serving the public is no longer really good enough for them. Cashing in and getting a tax-funded paycheck, not good enough. They're doing other things, like, like criminalizing political opponents. Because perhaps it is worth saying that, or considering, that maybe they want a one-party state. And if that's the case, they are behaving in a way that emulates other, say, regimes on the planet that want a one-party state, and that would be like communism. So I put in the uh, in the bulletin or in the chat section a link to the uh, the Rumble episode. It's it's Maria Bartiromo and Fox News really was on the bottom of that pyramid, pirata- the whole network. The network of Fox News was on the bottom of that DHS pyramid, which is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Gregor, are you with us? To get I am to come with in. you. Okay. Thank you for coming in.
4: Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, this is this whole thing was an interesting. The Dia app, um, you know, is frightening, uh, into my in my opinion, just because of you know the uses for it. Um, I love the fact that it's there to make you feel safe in a war zone. Um, no, you don't get to feel safe in war zones. I mean, that's, <laughs> no, you it's, don't. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, kind of oxymoronic, if you ask me. Um, right. You know, but you know the and yeah, it just shows and, and the that, power that of marketing. Oh my God, no, it was oh. like, kind of like
3: unbelievable. You know, and,
4: and the lovely voice that sp- that spoke on the app that told you all the wonderful things you could do. It was not creepy at all. <laughs> um, but getting back to the one party system, which we were just discussing in the latest part of those conversation, we have to have a one party system, Sheila, otherwise we don't get anything done. Oregon is a perfect example of this because it's, we it's have a one parties. party
3: system, Gregor, that 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 pumps out uh, anti whistleblowing snitching apps in in a, in a drum and bass marketing cachet
4: but it's it, for your safety
3: it's for your safety
4: it's to make you feel safe you're not safe but to have make to, you feel safe
3: have a vodka cocktail and tell on that brat
4: that's right that's right oregon's experiencing this right now in, in the last election we passed on uh, state bill or um, proposition 113, which made it a made it so that if a representative or a Senator of the state of Oregon doesn't show up for 10 days unexcused, they can no longer run for political office in the state legislature. And
3: well, I mean, that's appropriate. Why? Because they just, they forfeit work. They just didn't show up to work.
4: Well, eh it, it, Except for the fact that in in states like Oregon, where the second party is in a minority, and the primary party, in this case, the socialist bastards called Democrats, um, did I say that out loud? Anyway, um, you know, have control control of both houses. In I order mean, to you're allowed to
3: be editorial on this program. I mean, they they kind of earned it. They, yeah, they kind of
4: they really did. They did. They did. But, um, my, my point being is that, you know, the Republican, the few Republicans in Oregon that actually get elected because they're outside of the 30 mile circumference of Portland, um, they, they have no at all control. And the only way they can get any kind of negotiating done is to literally shut down the legislature by not showing up and not having a forum. So the tool that they are forced to use because of the current democratic party in Oregon is to say yeah we we will come and play when you offer us something worth coming in and playing for and you know and so right now there's a big stink because 12 of the or 10 of the 12 republicans that are in the house just mm-hmm. enough to make it you know just enough to make it uh make sure you don't have a quorum um have already expended their 10 days so in theory they're going to be unable to run for office next year, which is, you know, the whole point was to make sure that we have a democratic Senate. That's what the whole point of the bill was. I'm wondering, of course, in Oregon, if they'll be able to, uh, quash that proposition 113 with freedom of speech, because Oregon does have in its own constitution, does have a freedom of speech, um, clause, and, uh, they might be able to fight it. But, you know, the point of the matter is, is that they want one party. So they're trying to make it, so that the other party can't show up. Of course, until we find out that the Democrats are not showing up either, because I'm pretty convinced that most of them don't show up; they just proxy their votes.
3: Ah, uh, that's just stunning. That's a stunning display of political. I mean, it's it's really dirt baggy politics to begin with, but. The Pacific Northwest has really become a, a a strategy bed for how to marginalize or cut out any in a totalitarian way how to cut out any party that that isn't you. And um, you know, I, I think it's evil fundamentally and it and it is undemocratic. You know, you need to be hearing from at least one other party. In your political diaspora. Otherwise, you are a one party state. And I, I don't, I think people need to get involved. I, I, I don't know how else to, to, to put it. There's got to be some kind of um, ways or means to kind of review this, it, probably through the courts. The political well, the court- process. Go ahead. So the,
4: court, the courts are being very powerful right now. A lot of things have changed despite the you know, Biden administration because of court findings. Um, many of them are good. Um, but also, I mean, I, I still have to put the responsibility back on we the people because we're the ones that keep voting these idiots into office. And most of the time it seems to me um, that it's an, manner of the voters being completely uneducated and saying, Oh, there's a D there. I have to vote for that. Not realizing that everything they're voting for is literally against them.
3: So I want to, I want to say quickly, um, William Boniotti, who's a friend of the show is trying to call in and, um, I'm trying to administrate from the desktop version, which usually is, is pretty good and operable. Um, but he, I, I'm hoping that William will just call in. William, can you call in if you want to talk?
4: He says he uh, can't.
3: He says he can't. Um, I and think he, he, he wants
4: me for blocking him, but I don't believe I have anybody blocked. I'm double checking yeah.
3: that. Yeah, nobody's nobody's blocking you, William. Um, so I don't know what that is. I really don't. Uh, and I, I, I'd pull you up to speaker, but we got a lot of news to cover. Um, you know, maybe if we're at the, at the tail end of this, we're going to come back around to, to some of your DHS, uh, claims here. He said there is a Sandy Hook fraud shooting, which I know that that is what, what do they call that contraband to talk about Sandy Hook? in any way other than the government narrative, which is suspect in and of itself. You know, you should be able to discuss the Sandy Hook sh- shooting, especially if you live in Connecticut, which he does. Um, and he says it's, everyone must check inside. There he is, there he is. Um, was installed by the DHS during the shooting. It was, he thinks it's. it was an operation.
4: Well, and apparently it was my my fault because I found out for some reason he was blocked, and I don't remember blocking anybody. And, William, I apologize profusely.
8: No worries. Hi, guys. Well, okay, so I talked to Wolfgang Halbig personally three times in the last several months.
3: Who is Wolfgang Halbig?
8: Okay. He was the petitioner in the four-year hearings. There were three. I put a link. There's one. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: No, 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 I mean, there were three
8: FOIA hearings. Yeah, there's only one left online still, and I found it using a Yandex browser. I couldn't find it any other way. It's in Rumble, so I put a link to it in the chat. Now, that FOIA hearing he attends with Kay Wilson, his attorney, is very revealing. It's it's two hours and 19 minutes. But that's not – okay, the only thing that's revealed in that one is that the everyone check-in sign was there. But, um, which is very strange because, as you know, first responders don't have to check into anywhere. In other words, no police officer checks into a reported mass shooting, nor does any EMT personnel. Um, so Wolfgang, being a retired Florida State Trooper, retired principal, retired customs agent, in his retirement, he was hired by many school districts around the country to improve school safety protocols. So he was looking into this for that purpose. And, um... What he found was uh, when he put in his FOIA requests, uh, they were obstructed. He had one attorney he got rid of after paying $9,000. And Kay Wilson took over. They had FOIA. Stop stop there,
3: William. I I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just want to update the listeners now. I have made claims prior to this that there's been evidence that FOIAs throughout the Biden administration have been routinely obstructed, selectively obstructed by members of either the administration or from top down because it it's you know it disfavors the the public narrative and that's all part of censorship. So go ahead, William.
8: Yeah, so so we actually had three FOIA hearings. The only one available online still is the one that's in Rumble, which I think is cool because Rumble bought Colin and they they have they're the only so they have the one of the four hearings held at uh, the courthouse in Trinity Street in Hartford and. Um, Anyway, it's very revealing. It would take a lot for me to go through all the obstruction. But basically, let me just say they got nothing even in the hearing after two and a half hours other than that they requested. Other than one dash cam video that had the running time, the start time, running time, date, and police patrol car, all embedded data removed. In other words, it was censored, right? It, uh, right? So, really, that's garbage. It's not any use in civil court. But getting back to the DHS involvement, what um, Wolfgang told me what came out in future hearings. The first selectman of Newtown, Sandy Hook's a village in Newtown, the first selectman of Newtown testified that DHS was directly involved and dropped the everyone must check in sign. And so. It's no wonder we don't see that video still up, you know. But um I gained Wolfgang's trust because, you know, I have a thank you letter from the C- Attorney General of New York for assisting in her investigations. And also the DOJ did indict and convict the CPA of my father's probate matter. So I gained Wolfgang's, he saw that I was credible, I guess. And so we've talked three times, about 25 minutes of pop. There's a lot more I can tell you. But uh, bottom line is he was named in the Alex Stone suit in Connecticut and uh, he, he said uh, Norm Pattis was Alex attorney, and so we con- he had to contact Norm, and he said, hey, Norm, just oppose me. They had three civil uh, servants that violated subpoena for the FOIA hearings. There was a principal, I got notes, I'll get up and find the names. There was a principal, a custodian, and someone who was part of the school board who all violated subpoenas, and again, everything they requested was obstructed, so he said to, to Norm Pattis, just oppose me and, and basically adjudicate the FOIA hearing obstructions, uh, including subpoena request violations, in civil court, because that's the place to do it, where you can then um, say, okay, they violated subpoena, right? In other words, subpoena them again, um, and then you can claim they violated subpoena, find them in contempt, ask the judge to find them in contempt, and issue a bench warrant. Now, According to the commissioner who ran the hearing, the FOIA hearing, um, Kay Wilson noticed, notifies the commissioner in the FOIA hearing that I've posted that her subpoenas have, are being blocked or violated, The people didn't appear. Let's put it that way. And so the commissioner who was acting as the, ju- the hearing for a judge talks to an attorney next to him who's supporting him and says, well, we can't do anything about enforcing subpoenas in, in this type of hearing. So then there's a murmur, and I can't really make out what's being said, but I'm assuming they're saying something. this needs to be – in civil court, you can do that. Because I've requested – when I've had subpoenas that were approved, violated by people uh, not show up – Uh, When I was a pro se litigant, I had to get all my subpoena requests approved, which I always did by judges in the courthouse. And then when subpoenas were violated, I did the same. I said, okay, judge, they violated subpoena. This particular witness is not here. Please uh, find them in content and issue a a bench warrant for their arrest. Uh, Upon which the judge said, we'll have another hearing, which we did. And then. The person didn't show up, so then we're going to have another hearing. Let me just say, uh, yeah. So anyway, so that's the process. So getting back to this matter, so one has to ask yourself quickly. I know you have this is off topic, but it's relevant because the foyers were blocked. Wolfgang never got any answers. Norm Pattis could have brought this in civil and used it in Alex Jones's behalf. Why he didn't, I have no idea, And uh, unless the judge just obstructed it, which is grounds for an appeal. Now, we know... That's for yeah. Yes. That's
3: that definitely grounds for appeal.
8: Right. And we know that, um, according to uh, attorney uh, Robert Barnes, who is... Uh, Hosted by a fellow named uh, Viva FREI out of Canada. I don't recall if it's Viva Free or okay. Viva Fry. Yeah, Viva Fry. Al, uh, Attorney Robert Barnes has said that there's grounds for an appeal in the Alice Jones case. And there's many, many things he covered in a couple hours uh, over several uh, Viva Frey episodes. And I you know I've listened to them all. Bottom line is that even Judge Knapp says, and uh, when he's hosted by Colonel, uh, uh, Gerald Salente, and Judge not also judge napolitano also has his own video and writes something this is all going to be dropped in federal court because of,
3: well, they, i have yeah. a question to ask you yeah. and, and it is this it's like if i if i share this with a with a couple of lawyers and media um you know who know alex jones um do you, do you would you mind sharing the information that you have meaning like the, the oh yeah
8: uh, let me tell you, I got Wolfgang's phone number by watching a lot of videos, and finally, in two separate videos, he gave out his phone number. And those videos are on BitShoot. So then, the, what I'm saying is, I have two phone numbers for him. They're in the public domain. Where he's saying if people have questions, they can call me. He's in Florida, so what I can do is direct message you his phone numbers. You see, so that well, way. I don't you know.
3: need to contact him. What I want to do is is deal with the FOIA information. You know, sure. and it should be on there. Yes.
8: Well, like I said, <clears throat> you'll see it's two hours and nineteen minutes. You'll see what's what, exactly what shut down. You have a front row seat. There's someone in the all the whole there there the whole time. And so any attorney what will time, follow it. Any
3: in interest of time, William? Will there be a transcript of some sort with
8: that? Ah, good question. You know what? I didn't search for one in the Rumble video, but the Rumble video is in the chat. So, uh, okay. we can go there and um, check it, it,
3: it out. come with with some kind of transcript. And if you have the documents themselves, that would be super helpful. I'm gonna to try to connect you with people who who might actually be able to interpret this in context. they They know Alex Jones and and if he wants to go back and appeal, I hope he got a better lawyer. Oh my God. Um, Yeah.
8: Can I say one more quick thing about that? I know because I've litigated, right? If I get sued in state court, which has never happened, but if I did, and if the case has what's called federal subject matter jurisdiction for federal court, I have 30 days then as a defendant to remove it from state court into federal court. Now, the federal subject matter jurisdiction in the Alex Jones case are the three Free speech case laws that Judge Palatino and Robert Barnes cite; those being, uh, let's see, there's Brandenburg versus Ohio, there's um, New York Times v. Sullivan, and there's Snyder's v. versus Phelps. And that the, the states do not have the ability to limit free speech according to those federal case laws. Why Norm didn't remove them to to federal court immediately within the thirty day statute once he got served? Once, you know, Alex Jones will serve. I have no idea. I they don't miss- either.
3: And, I, and, you know, we're, we're out of time for this. But, you know, yeah, yeah. Him, I, 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 I thank you for calling in. Um, you know, if you don't mind sticking around for the listener. Uh, we got to get through a few more AI business. But but I appreciate you calling
8: in. Can I just make one more quick comment? Guys, I know you got to move on. In the live chat, there's also 2023 European Union uh parliamentary hearings in which De- Dr. David Martin testified he's got all the covid and covid vaccine patents oh sister when you guys you and gregor watch this you'll be blown away the the patents for vet, for um for the vaccine the uh spike protein vaccine mrna platform were used in animals since 1990 there is no warp speed
3: Later, William. We gotta- yeah, yeah. Later. Okay. Important.
8: Okay. Right.
3: Thank, thank you for calling. Okay, so that that was William Boniotti. He's a great friend of the show. Uh, he's invited to come here and talk to us anytime, anytime. So we're gonna return to our uh, our our stuff. So what happened this week? Um, David Sachs and Elon Musk and. A political presidential candidate who is on the uh, white supremacist, nationalist, you know, you know, horn devil list uh, because he re- he's a Republican. Oh, that would be Ron DeSantis. That's right. So uh, I'm going to pull this up for you. Um, here we go. So we've got we've got David Sachs saying now David Sachs is the proprietor of his network. And he says, I'm disappointed to see Fox buy into the idea that DeSantis' announcement was marred by the delay on the, on the Twitter space platform. So I'm just going to run this. It's about four or five minutes long. But uh, then, then I'll open it up for discussion. I'm going to talk to the moderator of last night's
6: Ron DeSantis Twitter launch, David Sachs. I'm going to see you in less than a minute. As you know, the Florida governor last night officially launched his 2024 presidential campaign. The anticipation had been building for months, so when the event began at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, the entire political world was waiting with bated breath. And then this happened.
9: Tonight, I'm pleased to introduce two individuals who have done more to loosen the Oh,
3: Yeah, I was there. Uh, minutes. Sorry
9: about that. We we've got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers, uh, which is a good sign. Let's see. So we
10: Yeah, looks good.
6: Yeah, yeah. The so. yeah. yeah, feed she crapped out. The snafu lasted for an agonizing 26 minutes, not exactly what the was hoping for. But then, at long last, the governor was able to make his announcement.
9: Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. Look, we know our country's going in the wrong direction. We see it with our eyes, and we feel it in our bones. I don't think it has to be this way. American decline is not inevitable. It is a choice.
6: I choose success and prosperity. Uh, But no one asked me. Then an hour later, DeSantis feared on Fox News tonight to straighten things out.
9: We had a huge audience. It did. It was the biggest they'd ever had. It did break the Twitter space. And so we're really excited with the enthusiasm, but ultimately it's about the future of our country.
6: DeSantis wisely making light of the incident, saying he broke the internet. So what really happened? Will the governor be able to bounce back? Joining me tonight, the moderator of the Ron DeSantis 2024 presidential Twitter announcement and general partner at Kraft Ventures, David Sachs is here. Welcome to the show, David.
9: Good
6: to be with you. So I, I'm going to tell you this as a compliment. Um, it reminded me of when I try and join my daughter's Zoom meeting for her high school prom committee and a couple of people don't have their PowerPoint prepared and their mics are muted and it takes a little bit to get going. Is that how it felt?
9: Well, anytime you're doing something new and groundbreaking or revolutionary, especially in tech, there's always you're always taking a little bit of a risk that things aren't going to go perfectly. And it did take us a little while to get set up because there was so much demand. I mean, the governor is right. We had over a million people simultaneously trying to get into a room, and it did kind of melt the servers. Uh, but once we set up a new room, basically we just moved the room from Elon's account to my account, and it just that basically cleared up the problem. And it didn't really mar the announcement at all. All it did was delay it. And I mean, honestly, you know, there's so many reporters uh, making this a big issue today. Have you really ever seen a campaign rally start on time? I mean, all this did was delay the announcement by 20 some odd minutes. So at the end of the day, I don't think this is a big deal. And it didn't. It didn't uh, do anything, like I said, to mar the substance of what DeSantis was talking about. Once we got started, the audio was really crisp and clear. Everyone could hear him. We took questions from all over the country. And I think if your viewers want to go listen to this, it's going viral on Twitter right now. I think they're going to wonder, what is all the fuss about? Because once we you know, cut out the, the, the delay, then the actual recording of what happened was perfect. So honestly, I think this is making a little bit of a, of a mountain out of a molehill.
6: I understand that and I'm on your side and I wanted this to work I was there at 6 p.m. I was very excited I was ready because like I said I think the governor has an incredible economic message and if he's able to really sell that and capitalize on some of his successes he he could stand a great shot but
3: okay so that that was uh, that was it I was there. I, I, I didn't do the same thing. I gave up after about 20 minutes. I gotta be honest. Uh, 20 minute delay is enough to, to, to kind of really kill the enthusiasm for sticking around, you know, but it's not like a conventional, you can't just, you know, online and on demand is supposed to be kind of immediate gratification. You're not, you're not pledging to be, you know, hovering around in the space, like waiting for a, a, a person to speak in person. You know, that that's not really what we agreed to do. You know, people people show up for these online meetings and, you know, while people put more gravity on, on online meetings, they're still not as, gra- as grave as being someplace in person. And it's never okay to take, you know, license with people's time. So I think that, you know, if they're gonna plan for debates, you know actually have a debate that was one of the, the you know qualified critiques of this event is that it was more like a town hall led by it was more like a town hall led by by the moderator david sachs and uh and a moderator meaning like it was it was like what's here uh rather than you know when we have a moderator dot you know Gregor gets to moderate, you know, who comes in and who doesn't. Uh, that, that's kind of what that is. But if you were to convey that in, from a Twitter space for people who are listening, they, they don't know that. If They're just trying it on. Um, <clears throat> it is an, an online space. And, you know, it's to be lauded and applauded. I'm glad that he participated. He's got more experience uh, with administrating maybe literally administrating like the technical engineering of the, of the space. But man they should have had ddos prep and they should have had you know additional bandwidth for for a a live political event that was gonna you know and he, because he's a republican he's got all these targets on his back from all the leftists and all the tech leftists who know what they're doing so they would probably ddos the mess out of his out of his relay gregor
4: well, sadly, the uh, Minecraft premiere that had occurred on Twitter a few months earlier had over two and a half million views at the same time, and they didn't crash. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, technology is, I've been involved with technology for a little while, um, being a little bit older than most, um, not decrepit, but old. And... Uh, <laughs> Nine times out of ten, it's always something you miss, and you pointed out the idea of a DDoS attack. You know, I we don't. I have not seen evidence one way or the other, but I have. I'm hard pressed to think that just a million people trying to listen at the same time would have brought down the servers. And the fact that they could change accounts to me would indicate that you know the DDoS attack wasn't prepared to t- attack the other account. Um, having said that. You know those things are easily enough with firewalls and a little bit of technology easy enough to avoid um you know i i feel sorry for ron um you know i i'm one of those guys that a lot of his policies you know they're calling him a racist but yet florida has more businesses from poc that are successful than any other state in the country per capita um you know people of color keep moving there because well it's a nice place to live according to them i'm not a humidity fan but you know, uh, you know, the the population is very diverse because of all of the Latin and um, Caribbean immigration that occurs down there. Um, so, you know, I I don't get anything that indicates racism from Ron, but he also part of my challenge. I mean, he
3: was- also is married to to a Latino, but I guess we don't pass anymore. As you know, I guess we've just been assimilated as as white supremacists, so. Keep going, Gregor.
4: Well, if Larry Elder can be the white, the black face of white supremacy, I mean, you know, what does kind really have to do with <laughs> it anymore, anyway? Um, but you I know, I concur. Trash
3: on that. I'm sorry, I have to, I have to keep throwing trash on that because it's so dishonest. It's so blatantly intellectually dishonest. Oh, yeah, I mean,
4: that- you had that shooter in in uh, Texas who was, you know, Hispanic, and but because he had some sort of patch on he was considered white supremacist um, you know color is not relevant anymore it's all about everything is about and ideology did
3: not talk about gangbanging whatsoever they didn't talk about gangbanging period they didn't bring it up it just didn't come hey, up do
4: you want to let mark in i you know you you said i i know i'm a i know i'm officially i'm a um, host on this show but i don't seem to have any administrative privileges i can't let mark in
3: ah uh, you know that that's a that's because I'm administrating the room from the desktop today. Do you want to take a call?
4: Yeah, let's take yeah. a call. Mark's waiting. Yeah.
3: yeah. Mark Mark is uh, Mark is waiting, so I'm gonna go ahead and administrate it today. You know, we're. we're I mean, the sound is great.
10: Hey, Shayla. Hey, Gregor, can you guys hear me okay?
3: Yeah, thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, you know, have you been on the program before?
10: No, this is the first time and, uh, okay. and I'm doing it a little differently as well, Sheila, because when you first posted and it was pre-show, I was back in my home office and then I had a bike ride planned. So I'm riding through Houston right now and, That's uh, awesome. and, and listening to you guys and the guests and uh, the, the discussion. And uh, I, I really, really like it a lot. And so uh, I, I will be listening in the future again. Oh, well, thank and uh, you. Thank share, you Sharing this with friends. So thank you. Um, I just wanted to say very quickly also about the Ron DeSantis glitch, and it was a major tech glitch. Obviously, there's no getting around that, and I'm sure he's very unhappy about it. But at the same time, he was trying to do something that's relatively breakthrough from the standpoint of of campaign management. I'm in the marketing world myself, and I've assisted on a few political campaigns, but mostly I've done commercial work and, and you know, consumer packaged goods and uh when you try to do something breakthrough like that the risk is is very very obvious Gregor talked about it I think very knowledgeably as well and uh, I don't think that at the end of the day anybody's gonna remember it other than gee you know he stood me up for 20 or 25 minutes and he didn't get his message across the way he wanted yeah, to I don't,
3: I don't think so either I don't think it's gonna wound his campaign integrally because he's still gonna campaign He's he's, he's- Filed in every state, you know. Presumably, he's got a whole campaign to run, and the absolutely, announcement- absolutely,
10: absolute, absolutely. And I love the fact that he <laughs> was trying to use Twitter as a platform, which you know, as Elon has 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 pivoted over into the realm that he's done. Uh, there's still a lot of glitches to be worked through, technical and otherwise, and and so I I applaud Ron DeSantis for trying to use that as a device for getting his message across. It's forward looking, obviously, and it's I I think it's in line with uh, a lot of the things that he stands for. So uh, I'm glad he tried it. I'm sad that it didn't work out the way he wanted to. And he he's got the opportunity to to redo it. I'm sure not necessarily on Twitter, but he'll get his message out there, as you say.
3: Yeah, I mean, what's really great for in this instance is that Elon Musk was there and Elon has had a, a, an absolute flat line in front of you know thousands of people. Remember when he dragged out that that uh, the Tesla truck?
10: Yes, absolutely. And the and the windshield cracked after he threw. It they, the... they
3: took a sledgehammer to it <laughs> to the bulletproof glass, and it, it yeah. You know, look who's who's still here buying <laughs> social media. It didn't. He didn't roll up and blow away. It's going to be fine.
10: exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So it gives everybody a chance to talk about it. It actually brings a little bit more attention to the DeSantis announcement and everybody knew he was going to run. It was just a question of web. So yeah. anyway, I just wanted to, to add that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And, and I just want to add again, you know, I really want to see credible debates happen on this platform, on, on Twitter spaces, anywhere, actually, because it, it's an endangered it's an endangered art. It's an endangered animal. Uh, I
10: totally, I totally agree, Sheila, and I'm so glad that you and Gregor are doing what you're doing. And I really appreciated that segment that you played from Matt Taibbi's uh, piece "America" this week, or I forget the name of it, but I subscribed to it yes, as well. America. And yeah. oh my goodness, that that is absolutely frightening stuff that's that's taking place uh, with DHS and 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 the associated stuff. And I'm just afraid that so many people are not paying attention and aren't aware. And so platforms like yours and, and Matt's and and, uh, and Mike and others are so important to get the word out because people just don't understand that it's business as usual and it's not. Right, right.
3: Well, thank no, you, Marcie. Go ahead, Gregor.
4: I'm sorry, Gregor. you know, Mark, you're, you're talking about all these you know, wonderful platforms that get out there and it really does seem to be the way of the future. Um, you know, hopefully Tucker can get out from under his contract with Fox pretty soon and start actually producing again. And I know that, you know, Megan Kelly and some of the other Fox people who were let go over the last <clears throat> few years have all done really well on independent platforms. Um, you know, somehow I'd like to see it a little bit, you know, I think there's some growing pains with this idea of independent platforms, um, but uh, it's really, you know, you get so much more information if you, if you surf around on these platforms. Not sure how to aggregate it to make it more user-friendly yet, but, I mean, that's going to be part of the future is that you're going to have your subscriptions or, you know, the people you pay attention to, and the secret's going to be being able to be informed with real information versus being, you know, dumped on by the Google algorithm that tells you how to think.
10: Very well said, Uh, Gregor. I totally agree with with your statement about that, and and that is going to be a challenge going forward and aggregating in a way that... Kind of pulls it together and and makes a you know a critical mass of the information, the accurate information, particularly in light of the fact that the traditional media have completely dropped the ball and have no intention of doing what they used to do, uh, other than to be cheerleaders for the, the current regimes. So uh, I think it's super important that uh, that the independent platforms continue to grow in scope, in scale, and in uh, importance. You guys are doing a great job, and, and I'm glad I discovered you.
3: Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, you're welcome to come back anytime. Uh, and thank if you, you have any, any marketing for us, just let us know. And-
10: <laughs> well, thank you, <laughs> Sheila. I appreciate that.
3: Okay, we're going to move okay.
10: on. Talk again. Thanks.
3: Um, so speaking of marketing, unfortunately, we have Facebook Meta, who... You know, they are a hard charger. They rely on ad dollars. They're, they're, you know, everything's appy driven. The appy is super invasive and grabby. And it'll frisk you in, in dark places uh, that you don't want them to go. Uh, but, and, and guess who knows about this? The EU. So what happens? To, so does cor- corporatized mass surveillance, that's exactly what it is. Their their appy was so powerful that the CIA decided to team up with them and the FBI and all these other intelligence agencies because they were getting masses of information that they coveted. So the question is, does corporatized mass surveillance by Facebook and U.S. social media companies get a universal nod? And the answer, of course, is no. And that is why GDPR, which is coming up five years on their anniversary, is working in part or in whole from keeping the U.S. government from using U.S. platforms to spy on their citizens. I wish the geniuses in Congress would come to the conclusion that this is not okay. Um, but they have licensed, the FBI in particular has licensed social media um, data uh, as as recently as last year. So, um with Facebook being synonymous with CIA surveillance. uh, There's this Quartz article here I want to bring up. And it's, uh, Meta's new record setting EU fine is nearly as big as its last six fines combined. European authorities found that Meta didn't adequately protect users' data from US surveillance. So this is Ireland and man, they are out to get them. Ireland's DPC, their data protection commission has fined Meta 1.2 billion, 1.3 billion U.S. for breaking Europe's stringent data privacy laws. And in a May 22 ruling, the DPC found that Meta had violated the GDPR by failing to protect European Facebook users' personal data from American surveillance. The penalty, the largest possible allowed by GDPR, and a landmark data privacy law passed by the European Union in 2018 is equivalent to 4% of Meta's global revenue last year. In a prepared statement, Meta said it would appeal the ruling calling the fine unjustified and unnecessary. I doubt it. Because those appies are such powerful algorithms. They're so powerful. Oh my God. And they have given so much intelligence to the intelligence community. (laughs) Ah, you know, and, and that's why I don't use, Facebook. They were going after people who aren't even on Facebook. So, um, that moves us to the AI, uh, juice here. So let's unpack that just a little bit. Oh, I also wanted to indicate that there's another social media platform that has been censoring and it's LinkedIn. So, um, while we're up here we're talking about platformers, um, LinkedIn has locked out Vivek Swami So I'm gonna pull this up. This is actual in election, uh, sorry, actual election interference, Fox News guest, LinkedIn. It hits LinkedIn over Brahmaswamy's suspension, and this is from The Daily Caller. A uh, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Swami's suspension from LinkedIn was an actual election interference, one journalist said on Friday. Quote, this type of censorship we see across every social media platform. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, told Fox News hosts John Roberts and Jillian Turner, if you have viewpoints at odds with, frankly, the far-left people who run a lot of these organizations, you will be censored, you will be deplatformed, and you will be flagged. And I guess that's pretty consistent with everything else that we've kind of covered with the program. So it's kind of redundant, but LinkedIn. Okay. Which is a professional platform for, for working professionals. Okay. They also got called out for banning a journalist after the Durham report. So let me pull that one up. This is from reclaim the net. LinkedIn bans journalists after Durham report posts. LinkedIn silenced political commentator Ben Sellers last Tuesday, Enforcing a complete ban on his account, Sellers, an outspoken critic of media bias, suspects the restriction was a result of a post he made challenging in the New York Times purportedly misleading coverage. The contentious post was a direct response to Meredith Kopit Levin, the president and CEO of the Times. In it, Sellers expressed hope that the newspaper would return its Pulitzer Prize awarded for its reporting on the Russia collusion narrative. Special counsel John Durham's final report had suggested that the story was largely a fabrication of the Hillary Clinton campaign. This goes on and on, allegedly assisted by high level government agencies. I just feel like so much of this news is redundant, but we're getting it. We're getting it in so many confirmed ways, like out of all these different orifices. Um, So let's go, let's go, let's go move to AI. How, cause an appy is AI. And the algorithm is the almighty algorithm, is algorithming all over the place. So we've got an ex-Google CEO, what, probably a builder of one of the most powerful algorithms that's out there for search and advertising. Um, he says that um, AI could harm a lots and lots and lots of people specifically, quote, harm or kill many, 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 many people. Former Google's CEO Eric Schmidt has warned that artificial intelligence could be used by evil people to cause harm and even death. Speaking this week at the Wall Street Journal CEO Council Summit in London, Schmidt specifically warned that AI is an existential risk to humanity, and existential risk is defined, quote, as many, 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 many people. Harmed or killed, he bluntly said. There are scenarios, not today, but reasonably soon, where these systems will be able to find zero-day exploits in cyber issues or discover new kinds of biology. Now, this is fiction today, but the reasoning is likely to be true. And what that, when that happens, <clears throat> we want to be ready to know how to make sure these things are not misused by evil people, he added. Zero-day exploits refer to security vulnerabilities or software flaws that are unknown to the maker of the particular software or application. These vulnerabilities face the risk of being exploited by malicious people to gain unauthorized access to computer systems, launch malicious activities, or bypass security measures. Okay? So, um, you know, now we're getting into, again, export tools, of war, which, you know, governments are inherently interested in for purposes of defense or counter defense. So we've got Lindsey Graham, Mr. Warbird, looking at, should only companies with a government approved license be able to offer generative AI tools? And we're talking things like deep fakes, And this would be gatekeeping so that AI is controlled by powerful corporations who will impose restrictions at the behest of the government. So they're they're building that type of relationship right now. Um, And this is from Reclaim the Net. Dated May 17th, several senators suggested that generative AI tools should be restricted and that only companies with government approved license should be able to provide the software during Tuesday's Senate Judiciary Committee hearing titled Oversight of AI Rules for Artificial Intelligence, where Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, testified during the hearing and agreed with the push for AI access to be restricted via licensing. And of course that went over like a lead balloon and we we covered a lot of our editorial positioning on that. It's suppressive of innovation you know that it's non-weaponized, and saying okay, and and it would be anti-competitive at the end of the day, because I don't I don't believe these companies will will be honest with their competition, and I certainly don't believe someone who's attending the Bilderberg conference this week is going to be honest about algorithmic competition. I don't believe that, not for a second. And I'll tell the other reason why I don't believe that is because. OpenAI went from a nonprofit open source, give it to everyone and let it benefit humanity to let's make this a corporate for-profit driven uh, enterprise. And the guy at the top of the heap is now saying, let's license this stuff. And and he's Mr. Pro-censorship, let's de-platform, let's marginalize people who didn't take their vaccines. So you can't trust this man. And you may not, should not, don't let him be your government. So I think Gregor wants to say something to that. (laughs) Well,
4: Mr. Altman, you know, as you pointed out, he was at that conference, the Baldenberg conference. Yeah. And he just has your best interest at heart. (laughs) He 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 wants the world to be one voice and it's his voice, damn it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, it's, and this is the scary thing to me when in, on the planet has the government regulating anything been positive. Now, one of my favorite things to point at that the government regulated into oblivion is the automobile industry. They, in, in 1970, was it 1976, 77, because of what California did, they forced, catalytic converters on cars all over the nation and innovation for vehicles suddenly stopped because the way they wrote the legislation was that you had to have a catalytic converter. And in order to have a catalytic converter, you had to be an internal combustion, normal gas engine. And so all this, they had to rewrite the law in order to get some of these innovations with electronic, with electric cars and stuff to come forward. So again, Congress was so short sighted that they said, Oh, well, we will have this device made by this company required on everything instead of saying here are the emissions that you can do figure out how to do it and with ai they're going to do the same thing they're going to say you do the ai this way or you don't do it at all and it'll be their way the way that will promote finding things um you know telling you the right things saying the white right, the right things for instance, we talked earlier about the CP3 app, and if you ask BARD about it, it tells you users can uh, report Russian military activity by taking a photo or video of the activity and uploading it to the app. Users can also provide information about the location of the activity, the type of activity. The app has a map that shows reports the incidents of Russian activity, and the app also has this chat function that lets other people talk to officials. So it's all these wonderful benefits, makes it sound like it's a Nirvana app, when it's probably more demonic in nature.
3: Okay, I'm gonna ask you about that term demonic, because you know, it's come up, it's it's being acculturated. It's like kinda of hot amongst, you know, men of a certain age. Can can you explain the demonic thing? Just just for the listeners that are here.
4: Okay, well Gregor's definition of demonic comes from uh Webster's uh eighteen twenty five dictionary where demonic means demon-like or similar to demonic uh, behavior as such of a demon. It does not mean you're possessed. It means that you're behaving in such a way as to be in the in the, in the in, as, you're, as if you were trying to be a demon. Okay, it's it's and most people say you know this is demonic in nature. They're thinking that a demonic influence has something to be over it. My use of it does not indicate that it's demonic. Influence as much as its demonic behavior, and my definition of that behavior is is a behavior that is completely motivated by emotion versus logic.
3: And you know, some, something of torment, something of, uh, of of a kind of torturous nature. That that's that's my understanding of of that.
4: Um, falls under, yeah, that falls under the um emotional aspect because you know, if you're ruled by emotion, you're torturing yourself over emotions constantly. This thing is bad, that thing is bad, I hate this, and this makes me angry, and this makes me feel hurt. It's all about the um, you know, how you feel. Where if you're not demonic, you're using your head, you're more logical, you're above that.
3: It's not positive emotions, Gregor. These are these are all destructive, negative emotions that, that you know, they're just supposed to inform our experience fundamentally. Like fear is only supposed to be used in in small quantities. It's not supposed to dictate every turn of the rudder. Absolutely. So, uh, so when I, I would think that when, when things are, as you say, demonic, it's being steered by a sense of terror or a sense of, of, uh, overwhelming, uh, you know, an overriding, kind of like a flooding of the logic capacity so that it's not, it's not necessarily in, in a, a place where you feel like you're in control. Did I get it right?
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think there, you know, there's other aspects in our modern society where people want to pass laws to make them feel better because they're doing something. For instance, you know, with our homeless crisis, we keep passing all these wonderful laws that we think are helping them. And yet, in the end, it only hurts them, but it looks good on paper, and so we feel good about it. Instead of looking at it logically and understanding that what we need to do is figure out um, how to solve the problem, you know, that these people who are not part of society anymore, literally, who have been separated themselves from society, how we can invite them back in such a way that's healthy. Um, You know, it's demonic to sit there and tell drug addicts, you can go ahead and shoot up. If you ask me, you know, shoot up all you want. I don't care. It's, you know, that's your freedom yet. If nobody says you, nobody bothers to tell them that yes, this is killing you. You know, it is your choice, but it's killing you. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever tells you that part, then you're not helping.
3: Yeah. I I think when we were, we're we're indicating instances of harm and and elective harm and the internet. There's a lot of internet addiction, and there's now, as we mentioned last week, there's a there's a whole cadre of new cadre of ambulance chasers who are um, filing class action lawsuits against uh, online platforms for teen, teen damage damage to their children. But there's well, other damage.
4: They didn't tell the truth. I mean, the the the, those those lot didn't. I think we had an article about that, didn't we? About yeah, the losses for the vaccines because the the online were not allowed to tell the truth, and it just came out in a study sponsored by the FDA this week that vaccines for children between five and seventeen are actually more harmful than the disease. Uh, the study concluded that not one single child of that age, who was healthy. Now, understand it was healthy. If the child is obese and has diabetes and other things, they may have been sadly impacted, and maybe they should or should not have gotten the vaccine. But if you were healthy, you were at zero risk of any long-term damage from COVID. Yet, you took a vaccine where, was it, 640 people last year had myocarditis incidences that, you know, oh, it was 326 athletes died in the last year from or athletes died on the field all over the world. And uh, all of them have one thing in common.
3: Okay. Were- so it is time to, it is time for this news because it kind of kind of dovetails all together. There is a vaccine injured, uh, injury suit to the Biden administration over government mass censorship program. The plaintiffs are seeking relief for government pressuring social media companies to censor COVID related speech. group of individuals injured by COVID-19 vaccines have filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration over the federal government's role in pressuring social media companies to censor information that called into question the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. All of the plaintiffs in the case, except for one, suffered and continue to experience serious and debilitating medical injuries within days and in many cases, hours after taking one of the COVID vaccines, according to the 124-page lawsuit. The plaintiff, who did not suffer injury and had a 16-year-old son who died five days after taking his first dose of the Pfizer COVID vaccine. All six plaintiffs relied on social media as a means of sharing personal experiences about the harm they suffered due to COVID shots as well as sharing advice, medical research, and support. Yet, as the suit states, their use of social media in these ways has been met with heavy and ongoing censorship. The group actively used Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, and GoFundMe as had their content repeatedly flagged as misinformation or removed while their accounts are at constant risk of being frozen or disabled. Okay So that is the real-life danger, you know if this was just kind of a danger that Was theoretical or or didn't harm anyone or you know Why would it why would it even bother you that the government censors some guy over there? Well, this is the reason you know when it mattered and when there was an autocratic grab on health Which is where this is gonna go. It's gonna go to your body, you know because this is unlimited totalitarian grab. They want to censor your speech. They want to tell you what to think. You know, the next thing they're going to try to do is get it in your body. And that's what this is. The vaccine was an attempt to get a technology, albeit a medical technology, in your body. and, And it was supposed to be controlled in a way that's against your will. This is not what our government was meant to do. They're driving it the wrong way we have limits to our government and they have they've just overscoped it it's so muffin top towards the favor of totalitarian leftist interests that that's all you see anymore okay you're not seeing the support base of and the structure that holds up our government and as a republic anymore you're just seeing this 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 morass that's just balloon over the top and so we just we gotta reform reorg we gotta we gotta take care of this and and you know we have to get involved otherwise you know who's gonna do it uh we got william wants to come up and talk again william you're welcome every time
8: hi thank you well okay so in the chat if you got to scroll down dr david martin testified from the uh, European Union conversations we're not hearing here, and uh, there's several links in there I, I included. Uh, basically, he covered oh my goodness the patents on the COVID vaccine uh, technology, that in the spike protein mRNA technology came out. They they actually had a vaccine in 1990 they were using on on in a veterinary setting, and and it didn't work. Because coronavirus, of course, mutates too fast. So they knew, and if, if you, I don't know if you saw the lady who testified in front of the EU who was from Pfizer when Burla didn't show up. I can't remember her name. It goes back several months. She had glasses on. When she was asked, was the vaccine tested to see if it stopped the spread? Her response was, well, no, we had to move it the speed of science, whatever that's supposed to mean. Do you recall hearing that, Sheila? Because I can look for it. Yep, And then, in fact, it didn't stop transmission either, as it turns out. And the reason being is this, very simply. The spike protein, uh, well, let's call it a gene therapy because it doesn't fit the definition of vaccine. It's not an attenuated virus. It's not doesn't have the whole nucleotide. It's just a spike protein for that variant, first of all. What it does is it temporarily increases your um, antibodies in your blood. But when you're talking an aerosolized virus, you have to increase the antibodies in the mucous membranes in your eyes, nose, and mouth. You see? And it doesn't do that. So that way it never could stop, this. first of all, they testified it didn't stop the spread. It also stop. You, does not stop you from getting sick. What it might do for people who, like uh, Gregor said, have certain other possible comorbidities is reduce the duration of an illness and maybe for that small segment of people, the risk of, uh, you know, serious outcome. Do you see what I mean? But that's that's questionable because Joseph Latipo, you know, Joseph, uh, Joseph Latipo, Ron DeSantis' surgeon general, he has the numbers where for working age men from, I, I don't quote me, I think it's 16 to 40, I believe. The... The Moderna vaccine higher at a five times higher rate of myocarditis and pericarditis than COVID. That's ladipo You know who he is, right? Joseph Vladapo. <coughs> yeah, yeah, so,
3: didn't you send me a news item about from Epoch Times about kids in myocarditis?
4: Right. Well, the FDA study is uh, that the, the study of the FDA just recently. Um, your mic is them. low,
3: Gregor. Your mic. Can you speak up?
4: Wow, my mic is low. I wonder what that's about. I didn't change anything. Is that better?
3: Oh, that's better. Yeah, thanks.
4: Okay, I don't know what I hit, but fine. Anyway, um, the um, the FDA has was recently just been given a study they commissioned that indicates that giving vaccines between five and seventeen year olds is detrimental because of risks of of myocarditis. Um, they're also Similar other studies that the FDA has commissioned and not necessarily reported on indicates that if you're generally healthy and you take the vaccine, the more often you take it, the more likely you are to get COVID. Um, There's still a debate on whether or not you die from it or not, of course, but if you're just, but most of the research indicates if you were healthy, the odds of you passing away from COVID was almost, if you were healthy and below 80, chances are you wouldn't die. Yep.
3: So um so that concurs, William, with with the research that you're indicating.
8: Yeah, right. and why this is so important is okay, the World Health Organization, which is funded vast majority of it funded by NGOs, you know, that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellness Trust, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and Gavi, which is another NGO vaccine organization. Um no, he who pays the, the piper calls the tune. Okay. And that's quoted by Andrew Bridgen, the MP out of the UK who, who testified he has a degree in virology. Uh, with a lot to what Gregor is saying and, and a lot more. So to validate that. Absolutely. Now the thing is the World Health Organization is pushing for international health regulation amendments. Yeah, and I remember
3: that. you know
8: about that, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah,
3: I, yeah, I remember.
8: Do you want me to touch on that or you're short of time no, go, go ahead i mean I, I
3: just wanted to let you know that that i remember it
8: <laughs> okay great yeah now see the A- international health regulations have been in existence through the world health organizations to- since 2005 and they were always non-binding okay so they were r- supposed to be recommendations do you follow and in which your individual sovereign choice was still yours that uh, are in article three well These amendments remove the words non-binding, believe it or not. So by default, they become binding, you see. And in Article 3 removes your sovereign rights to what's called equity. Like, so what they want to do is have a broad brush, uh, response that all the member nations would have to comply with because they're, they're removing the phrase non-binding. And, uh that's relevant because you remember how they had Event 201 like a month and a half, two months before COVID. That was John Hopkins University, the Gates, Melinda Gates Foundation, and the uh, CDC and the World Health Organization. That was Event 201 that occurred, uh, best my recollection, about two months before COVID started. Well, they had another one in Brussels called Catastrophic Contagion. I'm going to ballpark it several months ago. So recently, where they table topped out a new contagion. Catch the words. Catastrophic contagion. Very scary, right? And one of those possible contagions gets this severe epidemic. Woof. Enterovirus respiratory syndrome that's allegedly Related to polio and would give kids brain damage and possibly, you know, paralysis. Wow. Okay. So, now, whoa. So, of course, this is very scary sounding and all these other things. And so, in other words, and according to Fauci of the, the well, of the uh, vaccine mafia, um, <laughs> there's going to be another one by the end of 2024. Did you hear the parting oh, words?
3: Okay predicted I, I guess oh, yeah. you, know, you clock your watch on it well, uh-huh. have, uh, you know we won't be ruled by um, pandemic administrators this is not right. this is not a government that has uh, adequate checks and balances it doesn't answer to uh, it's an emergency management government so it's worth saying at this point that uh, we have to reorg the continuity of government and emergency management clauses. Okay, Mm -hmm. this this has been so abused. And and throughout dictatorships in modern history, Mm -hmm. uh, case study Hosni Mubarak, okay, they use the rubric of emergency management to run the people's government however they want. Okay, but it's always on term of your safety and emergency rule. And emergency rules are always supposed to be temporary, but in this case, this emergency stretched for almost three years and we just get out from underneath it. And if you don't think that there isn't some kind of kibosh on certain persons during those administrative terms, like they will slap you with some kind of label, and you will be on, in the outlands, you know, before your head can spin, because they have the intelligence to do so. So I want to I want to wrap with this particular piece of uh, logic mag, okay? And this is a this is a an article that was penned by Meredith Whitaker, a very very smart lady who's been working on AI for a long time. Uh, Deep in the guts of the tech Silicon Valley, she knows she's been in top echelons for a while. And so she's kind of outing academically where the uh, business model really comes from. People have talked about it for years, have called it, you know, digital serfdom, digital sharecropping. But this is, this is where the, this is the origin stories, plantations, computers, and industrial control. And so I'll just read the uh, thesis, the first paragraph, the blueprint for modern digital computing was co-designed by Charles Babbage, a vocal champion for the concerns of the emerging industrial capitalist class who condemned organized workers and viewed democracy and capitalism as incompatible. That was his worldview. Histories of Babbage diverge sharply in their emphasis. His influential theories of how enterprising capitalists could best subjugate workers are well-documented in conventional labor scholarship. However, these are oddly absent from many mainstream accounts of his foundational contributions to digital computing, which he made with mathematician Ada Lovelace in the 19th century. Reading these histories together, we find that Babbage's Proto-tailorist ideas on how to discipline workers are inextricably connected to the calculating engines he spent his life attempting to build. So this is to control the labor. If they don't want you laboring because they are offended, because they feel like their in, their interests are going to be injured somehow by by the this slightest margin of, of dissent. Okay? They're delicate, you know emergent egos to the superstructure will, will, will just fall apart. Their feelings will be so hurt. Ah! Okay, if you, if you dissent, if you dissent, if you have a contrary thought, if you go against this, this autocracy, against this orthodoxy that they have planned so carefully for you, okay, it will break everything. But it doesn't. It, It just doesn't. And if, if you write it, it's like somebody saying, unless you give me exactly a five-star review, I will not make it. And that is a lie. That is not true. But, the, but this ethos, this idea, that this all-or-nothing consensus that there cannot be anything but uniformly one way uh, or else, this this has to go. We have to become more mentally flexible. I don't really know where it came from because it's not really a traditional American thought point or, or a way of doing things. People typically include dissent in 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 the room. It's there whether they want it or not. And if they're big adult people, then they learn to live with it. But this this idea where we can't have any any balance, you know, or or take a punch you know, at least ideologically, our our ideas need to to suffer some kind of challenge. Otherwise this is a brittle, weak society we're building and it can be hacked off at the head and the whole thing will fall fall apart because it's over-reliant on a a unipolar structure. So I I just wanted to leave it as that kind of like nice little tight knot. Uh, Global government is the same type of thing. They are very brittle. They don't want any dissent whatsoever and it's, it's super inconvenient for them. They all seem to be seamlessly agreeing with one another, but, but I don't necessarily believe that that's so, so, um, I hate to, to hog the mic, but does anybody want to, to help me wrap this up? <laughs> um,
4: in the, uh, economics is a root rooted in Marxism is where we see this coming from. Um, there's a few different schools, you know. There's the Friedman School of Economics, there's the Keynesian School of Economics, and then there's the Austrian School of Economics. I'm a big fan, as a libertarianish person, of the Austrian model because it's free market, it's organic, it has been proven again and again to work despite the government. Um, and it's all about. It literally is all about finding ways to control because the folks in charge think they're better and think they need to control the masses. And the secret to a productive society, if you look at history in the United States especially, if you look at the 1700s to the 1800s, how much control did the government really have? It had some, granted, more than it should have in most instances. But the fact of the matter is that entire economic boom that we now call the industrial revolution that was founded in great britain and in the united states came because governments could not control the markets and so again and again products came up they were thrown out there the snake oil salesman got laid by the wayside and the good stuff kept coming and kept growing sorry bill i didn't mean to cut you off
8: no no thanks um, yeah well real quick the World Health Organization, the UN, those non uh, NGOs, along with the uh, European Union, they all want to control the narrative through dis- what they call disinformation, misinformation, censorship campaigns. Uh, you may have yeah. heard of this, Sheila and Gregor. Uh, it's the MDM, the,
3: the misinformation, disinformation,
8: malinformation. Right. Now, pushing back, pushing back on that is uh, – uh, Joseph Latipo, who's a Harvard grad by the way, and Ron DeSantis—they're forming until- they formed an intelligence committee to fight the misinformation, disinformation from where? From the CDC, from the FDA, and the World Health Organization. So you've got him pushing back, which is good, along with uh, Senator Ron Johnson out of Wisconsin. Um, but this is critical because they—they right, they also want to weaponize psychiatry. Okay, oh, where- yeah, yeah. You heard about that? Dr. Bregan, he did a piece, uh, the expose covered it, uh, Children's Health Defense Fund, um, which is a quick segue into it. I did put in the live chat, Children's Health Defense Fund, which is Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s uh, organization, um, on the um, World Health Organization proposed pandemic treaty and uh, international health regulation amendments. So for people looking for resources, I always try and, provide corroborating explanatory uh links so i just wanted to say that and thank you so much Sheila and gregor for giving me an you opportunity
3: know what, William, to speak. it's a pleasure this has been a great show i really appreciate yes. it everybody who's stopped in and um i can't wait to see you guys next week but we're going to wrap it up right there uh you've been listening to the unsanctioned citizen podcast we air here every weekend with gregor Hinckley, um at 2 p.m central standard time here in austin texas and in Hillsboro, Oregon. Um, hopefully, next week. <laughs> so, hopefully, next week we will get to uh, some more of our, you know, keep it weird segments where there's a kind of parody between Austin and, and Portland, so to speak. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to it. But thank you again for joining us here today. I'm going to try to run this outro because. Uh, it may or may not work. I hope you'll you'll give me a chance. <laughs> Let's see. You going to do it? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Let's see. All right. It's either gonna happen or it's not. <laughs> it looks like it was going, but now it's not. Okay, kids, no outro this week. Automatic, Colin. That's where it's happening. So, join us next week, and we'll we'll get to you then.